Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you. Let's pray that God would help us as we think about that passage which was just read to us. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do pray you would help us to focus well this evening and hear what it is that you have to teach each of us tonight. And we pray that when we hear what you have to say, that we would believe it, trust it and live it out. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. A bit of rock and roll trivia. In 1974, the Hollies had a hit song entitled The Air That I Breathe. And the chorus went along the following lines. I won't sing it, but it went, Sometimes all I need is the air that I breathe and to love you. Beautiful sentiment, isn't it? Now, I can't personally comment on whether the lead singer really did need to express his love for whoever he was singing to quite as intensely as that, but I do know that he did need the air that he breathed because we all need the air that we breathe, don't we? Why do we need air? Well, air has oxygen and we need oxygen to survive. But air is about 21% oxygen. The rest of it is a whole lot of other gases, particularly nitrogen. And then mixed in with that are a whole lot of impurities. There's dirt, there's dust, there's pollution. And we breathe it all in, barely without thinking about it or even noticing it. It's just the air that we breathe. Now, the culture in which we live is also a little bit like the air that we breathe. We live in it, we barely notice it, we breathe in its good stuff, we breathe in its bad stuff. There's a lot of great stuff in our culture. Uh, there's, you know, sort of various family values, you know, the importance of friendship. Uh, there is music, there's medicine, there's a noble game of cricket, all sorts of really good stuff, which are really, really good for us. But also within our culture, there's a whole lot of negative influences as well. There is uh, often sexism, racism, classism, meism, intolerance, etc., etc. We breathe all the good stuff and the bad stuff in, often barely thinking about it and sometimes accepting some of the tenets of these harmful philosophies without even really thinking it through. Now, one of the biggest challenges to our Christian faith in our Western culture is, and I almost yawn as I say this, is materialism. Why do I feel like yawning? It's because you've probably heard millions of times we live in a materialistic culture, our culture is very materialistic, etc., etc. It's almost trite to say that the West is dominated by materialism. But our Western culture is materialistic, which is why it's said so often. It's part of the air that we breathe. Now, uh, philosophically, uh, materialism means something rather, but in, in popular, I guess, understanding, when we say materialism, we're referring, referring to that attitude which elevates the possession of material things over and above, I guess, spiritual things or relational things or uh, intellectual things. It's the possession of material things which dominates, which is what we refer to as materialism. Now, um, materialism is marked by accumulation and ambition. It's the idea that uh, he or she uh, wins who dies with the most toys. Uh, that's where we're sort of going with there. Uh, Madonna famously tapped into this in the 80s with her song Material Girl. She said she's a material girl living in a material world. Now, a lot of material things are really good. There's a lot of good things. You know, we can enjoy cars and houses and, you know, interesting phones and things like that. But as our ultimate goal, they are rubbish. Yet, it's the view of many in our culture. Now, before we start sitting here going, 
uh, you know, tutting and thinking what a you know, horrible culture we live in. What we do need to do is remember that we are part of this culture as well. We breathe in materialism, we're influenced by materialism as well. And in that we barely notice it, and in that it's such a potential danger, it's good that Jesus teaches on it so that we can recognise it and better respond to it. And that's the thing which Jesus does in tonight's passage. Now, if you've been here over recent weeks, you know we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount and we're up to chapter 6 and tonight we're looking at verses 19 to 34. The main points are on the outline, you would have received when you came in and you can see them on the screen behind me. We're going to look at the first half of the passage, verses 19 to 24 under the heading, Accumulation, Where is Our Treasure? And then we're going to look at the second half of the passage, verses 25 to 34 under the heading, Ambition, What Are We Seeking? So that's where we're going. Let's start with the first point, accumulation, where is our treasure? The passage opens by speaking about two sorts of treasure and the first sort of treasure is mentioned in the first verse. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. What does that mean? When he says you shouldn't store up treasures on earth, what does he mean by that? And what does he not mean by that? Let me tell you what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that possessions are bad. That's nowhere in the Bible. He's not saying that saving up for a rainy day is bad. I mean, that very sort of thing is encouraged in Proverbs chapter 6. He's not saying that enjoying the good things in this world is bad. I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says we can receive these things with thanksgiving. But what Jesus is saying is bad is the following. He's saying that the selfish accumulation of goods is bad that extravagant living is bad, that using our possessions in a way such that we ignore the needs of others who are in need is bad, and that getting our self-worth from possessions is bad. And these are real dangers in the materialistic culture in which we live. Now, not only is living this way inconsistent with loving God and loving our neighbours, but it's also a really bad investment Many years ago, I was playing a game of cricket, second reference tonight, um, and I was sitting on the sideline talking to one of my teammates, and he was telling me a story, and I don't know whether it was true, because it could have just been cricket chat, but it's a good one anyway. He said years ago, when his dad was younger, he had some money which he wanted to invest. And there were two up-and-coming companies which he was suggested he could invest in. One of, it was an, one of them was an up-and-coming company called BHP. The other one was a company called something like Asbestos Incorporated. You guessed it, what did he invest in? He thought, oh, asbestos, ink seems pretty good, put his money in that, and of course, you know, that proved to be a very poor long-term investment. Now, you go for lousy return. Now, Jesus is not against investing, but he's against bad investments. If we're going to invest, he wants us to invest well. Look what he says about investment in verses 19 and 20. He says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, treasures on earth are short-term, and they give a poor return. They break down, they wear out, and they don't survive the grave. We can't take it with us. Yet, uh, treasures in heaven are long-term, they give a great return, they do survive the grave, we can take it with us. 
Now, treasures on earth, you know, as I said, cars, phones, things like that, they can be perfectly good, but as, as the things we're ultimately trying to accumulate, they are rubbish. Now, we think, okay, look, I don't want to store up treasures on earth, I want to get these treasures in heaven. How do we go about storing up treasures in heaven? That's the key question, isn't it? Well, it seems to me that we store up treasures in heaven if we do things with our lives which impact eternity. Now, what are the things which are going to last for eternity? God, people. And so we're investing in God and people in a biblical way, we'll be storing up treasures in heaven. So what sort of things are going to count? Anything which helps our relationship with God counts. Anything which improves our Christian character counts. Anything which promotes evangelism or discipleship counts. Any way in which we can show our love for others, helping the needy, whatever, counts as well. In fact, if you look through your spring into ministry forms or slips, those sorts of things count. So I guess a good question is, if you were to reflect here on your current life at the moment, your life as you know it, and ask yourself the question, what are you really thinking about? What are you putting your emotional energy into? What do you daydream about? Where's your money going? What do you pray for? What sorts of things are you seeking to accumulate? Treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? When you're doing that exercise and you're thinking about what you're trying to accumulate, ask yourself the question, what will I think about what I'm prioritising at the moment? What will I think about it in 15 years' time? Will I think it was worth it? What will I think about it in 115 years' time? Will I think that was worth it? What will I think about it in 1,015 years' time? Will I think, gee, I'm really glad I put all my time and energy and efforts into whatever it was, would be or wouldn't be? Interesting question. Now, often we invest, sadly, in short-term things, treasures on earth rather than treasures in heaven, because we don't see things clearly. Which brings us to our next few verses, two ways of seeing. One of which is a realistic way, one of which is a very unrealistic way. When I was growing up, I was a, very, a fan of a comic strip which used to be in the Sydney Morning Herald called Hagar the Horrible. And there's, uh, Hagar the Horrible features Hagar, who is a Viking. He's a fairly lovable Viking, but he's probably not the most intellectually adept person you would ever meet. Now, he has a family whom he loves, uh, and he has a son. His son is really bright, but let's say, not particularly likely to win a powerlifting contest, okay? Anyway, Hagar and his son are out one night under the stars. The stars are in, you know, up in the sky. They're looking up in wonderment, and the son says, oh, wow, it sure makes you think, doesn't it? To which his father, Hagar, goes, yeah, we're so big and they're so small and puny. Now, he saw, but he didn't see, did he? He didn't really... Hagar didn't take in what he was looking at with any degree of reality. Now, Jesus is concerned that we see things clearly. Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. The eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see, the eye impacts the whole body. What we see impacts what we do. Similarly, how we spiritually perceive the world around us affects how we live as well. The question is, do we see the world around us as God sees it? Do we see it informed by the truths we see in Scripture? Do we have a Christian worldview? Do we have a Christian grid? Or is our worldview and grid, what we see, shaped, I guess, 
by some of the forces in society around us, for example, materialism, which aren't that crash hot. You see, if our minds and thinking are shaped by God, we will make wise decisions in life. If our thinking is shaped by something else, we'll make poor life decisions. I wonder whether you ever look at some of your family members and friends and rip your hair out thinking, why did they do that? What a horrible decision to have made. They're probably not seeing things clearly. I love a game of soccer and uh, I remember watching Diego Maradona, the Argentine soccer player who passed away during the week at the age of 60. He was a sensational player, probably one of the best two or three players ever to have played the game. Did incredible things on the soccer field, but I think it would be fair to say that his life off the soccer field was marked tragically by one poor decision after another. There was drug addiction, there were infidelities, there were links with the mafia, etc, etc. And he died uh, at 60. Sadly, he didn't have good spiritual eyes. I don't think he was making good decisions because he didn't see the world, I guess, the way that God would have us see the world. Now, you or I may not live lives of excess the way that Maradona did, but um, you know, how would we go if God gave us a spiritual eye check? How do we see it? Do we see the world as God sees it, or are we informed by Scripture, or are we seeing it in the way just the culture around us sees it? Which I guess brings us to the next point. Because the next verse talks about two masters, looking at verse 24. It says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, God and money. Now, it's perfectly possible to hold down two jobs and have two bosses, because you can work you know, for a few hours over here, then a few hours over there, no dramas. But you can't have two masters because what it's referring to here is the master-slave relationship. And if the master owned a slave in the first century, it was like 100% ownership. He or she had total control over you. You couldn't have two masters because what if what they said came into conflict? You can only have one master. Jesus is saying here is that devotion to God is exclusive, but I guess commitment to materialism is also exclusive. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both God and materialism, he might have said. But unfortunately, that's what many of us, or many people, try and do. They try and serve both God, but also live materialistically at the same time. How might this work? Well, someone might sort of think, well, I'll serve God on Sundays, and I'll be materialistic during the week. They wouldn't be as crass as to put it like that, but that might be, in effect, what's going on. Or they might serve God with their lips, but they're serving materialism with their hearts. Once again, they wouldn't say it, but that may be in effect what's going on. So, when it comes to accumulation, contrary to the world around us, contrary to the air that we breathe, Jesus urges us to store up treasures in heaven. There was a famous 19th century English cricketer, third reference, this is good, isn't it, called C.T. Studd. He went on to become a missionary and he penned some verses, or a bit of poetry, which you may be familiar with, you just don't know that it came from this particular guy. And two of the lines here I go as follows, he says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And that really summarises what this first part of the passage is all about, it's what's done for Christ which will last. So that's accumulation. Let's go on and think a little bit about ambition for a few minutes. The second point, ambition, what are we seeking? And in this section of the passage, Jesus starts with the very mistake 
that so many of us make so often. Let me read verse 25 for you. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? You see, people can worry about food, drink, clothes, houses, cars, whatever. Now, I guess we can worry about these sorts of things in two respects. Firstly, some people might worry about food and drink and clothes because they're living on the poverty line and their concerns relate to survival. But other times, people can worry about food and drink and clothes and houses and cars, not because they're on the poverty line, but because is our food and drink good enough? Are we driving the right sort of car? Are our clothes in touch with fashion? Is our house one which is going to impress others? Have we got the latest iPhone? And we're worried, not so much because of survival, but because of status. We try and keep up with the Joneses next door. I read recently that one of the uh, concerns about materialism is it is always associated with worry. Distorted ambitions can lead to worry, stress and anxiety as we wonder, are we keeping up with the glossy images we in our minds think we should be keeping up with? A few years ago, a British philosopher by the name of Alain de Botton wrote quite a popular book called um, Status Anxiety. And in this book, he was addressing the issue, uh, the anxiety that most of us have about what other people think of us and whether they judge us as a success or failure. And often we feel that people judge us as a success or failure by what we wear, the car we get into, what our house is like, which phone we pull out, etc., etc. So it can produce worry and stress. Now Jesus says, don't worry about these things, food, drink and clothes. Again, when he says don't worry, what is he saying and what isn't he saying? There was a famous British bishop from the 1800s called J.C. Ryle and he often says some really good things. And I think he, he captures this truth here very well. Ryle says, prudent provision for the future is right, but wearing, corroding, self-tormenting anxiety is wrong. Good to prudently prepare for the future, but ripping ourselves apart with worry is not what we should be doing as Christians. Now, when I say that we shouldn't have anxious thoughts, I guess I'm talking about what I would describe as normal anxiety that all of us experience at various times. Now, uh, some people here, I, I suspect, uh, suffer from you know, um, anxiety at a more, I guess, mental health level. And so some of the things we're saying here will be helpful to that, but there'll be other issues which I don't have the expertise to address. I'm talking, I guess, about, let's call it run-of-the-mill anxiety, which is still pretty intense. <laughs> Jesus says, gives us two reasons for why we shouldn't worry about these things. The first one is that worry is contrary to common sense. It doesn't help us in any way. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Well, of course. You're not, are you? It's probably going to take a few hours off your life rather than add it on. It doesn't do anything. There was an American astronaut called Jim Lovell he captained the Apollo 13 mission, which was going to the moon back in 1970. Uh, on the way out there, there was an explosion on board. Uh, there were problems with the electrical systems and the oxygen. The crew looked like they could have genuinely been lost in space. But thanks to their hard work and the hard work of others, they managed to survive and get back to Earth. Now, Lovell was interviewed at a press conference sometimes afterwards, and someone said to him, were you worried? To which he replied, no, not really. Worry is a useless emotion. I was too busy fixing the problem to worry about it. Okay, now, there's someone who is disciplined enough 
to get his worry under control. I don't know whether you're quite as disciplined as Jim Lovell. Jesus then later says in terms of common sense in verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, if you're worrying about something in the future, you suffer twice. You suffer as you worry about it, and then you suffer when the thing actually happens. And sometimes the thing never happens anyway. So you just have to worry which you never needed to give. Mark Twain uh, once said when he was older, I'm an old man and have known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. <laughs> you know, you worry in advance, it doesn't happen, what a waste. So he's basically saying, worry doesn't achieve anything. Now, if you can discipline your mind to do that, wonderful. But uh, Jesus then gives a second reason why we shouldn't worry, which is really helpful. He says, because worry is contrary to trust in God. And if we're Christians, we actually can trust God. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air, for they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Point there is pretty simple, isn't it? If God looks after even the birds and makes sure that, you know, they get food, <laughs> how much more will he look after his people? Uh, of course he will. Now, when Jesus says that God's going to look after us, that doesn't mean that our lives are going to be free from trouble. I mean, nowhere does the Bible say our lives are going to be free from trouble. There's regulation suffering and there's persecution, which Christians are all going to face. But Jesus is saying we, should, we might be free from trouble, but we should be, ideally, free from worry, or at least have low worry levels. Because the assurance of the Bible is that God is always with us, watching over us, looking after, after us. Nothing which happens to us happens outside of God's knowledge and consent. We can trust God that he's always looking out for us and watching over us. And then we get to what I think is really the key summary verse of this section. I mean, the key summary verse from the first section of the passage is store up treasures in heaven. The key verse here is verse 33, which says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So we shouldn't be worried about all these sorts of things, but we should be concerned about seeking first God's kingdom. What does that actually mean? Well, God's kingdom is God's rule. So if we're seeking God's kingdom, we're seeking ourselves to live more under God's rule, you know, to grow as Christians, and we want more people to come under and grow under God's rule. Evangelism, discipleship, etc. And so seeking first his kingdom, we'll be concerned about our relationship with God, our Christian character, outreach, discipleship, helping those in need, and we'll also be looking forward to Christ's return as well. So they're the things we should be seeking to put in first place. Now, did you notice the last bit of the verse, though? It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, you know, other things we may have ambitions in relation to, food, drink, clothes, whatever, all these things will be given to you as well. Now, what I think this is saying is that it's perfectly good to have ambitions in other areas as long as they come under our primary ambition uh, to seek first God's kingdom. So John Stott, the famous English theologian, once said, there's no harm in having secondary ambitions, uh, but they should be subservient to our primary ambition. So by way of personal testimony, and I'm going to go for a record tonight with my fourth cricket reference, but when I was in high school, uh, I think I was a pretty keen Christian in high school, and I was a pretty keen cricketer as well, and I was hoping to do something with cricket. And I remember sitting in a school assembly, meditating over the question of, if God asked me to give up cricket, would I do it? Now, I don't know how God would have indicated to me that he wanted me to give up cricket, but it was a hypothetical. 
The question was, what's more important? Is it God or cricket? Now, that's pretty easy for most of you to decide, but for me, it was a hard decision. And after much soul-searching, I concluded that, no, no, God was more important than cricket. Now, reflecting back a number of decades later, can I say, I think I enjoyed cricket more by putting God first. By trying to put God first and seek first his kingdom, and I had cricket and a whole lot of other little ambitions underneath, I think I enjoyed cricket more than if I tried to make cricket my God and had my primary ambitions there. Then my life would have fluctuated, gone up and down according to form and injury and things like that. And in the end, cricket's not God, so it's not going to satisfy. But when people God first, and you have, you know, cricket, I want to be the world's greatest father, uh, whatever it is, watercolour painting, you know, whatever your ambitions may be, underneath, it falls into place. As I conclude, let me tell you about three men whom a minister I know once met. This particular minister was doing vox pop interviews with people on a street in the city near his church. And amongst the various people he, he interviewed were these three men. They were guys of about 50 years of age. They seemed very nice, helpful men, uh, but they were not churchgoers. But all of them had gone to church when they'd been younger. Uh, and they seemed to have fond memories of church from their younger day. I think they said that they prayed sometimes. They had read the Bible in the past. They knew who the Holy Spirit was. But despite all this, these three men were not living as Christians. At the end of the box pot, the minister actually said to them, look, why not? Why aren't you guys Christians? And they said, there isn't time. Now, these are guys working in the city in important, important jobs. One of them said, look, I work hard all week and the weekend is for the family. Now, can I say, I'm quite sympathetic to that viewpoint. I, I sort of get it that someone might say, look, I work hard all week, weekends for my family, I don't have time for God. I'm not saying it's a good way to think, but I sort of get it. And really, quite a few of the friends I grew up with uh, would probably endorse that view. And it sounds somewhat noble, you know, working hard, looking after your family. But perhaps, uh, I'd like to perhaps unpack what they said a little bit. Now, thinking about it a bit more deeply, I think we'd all realise that there are hard-working Christian adults who work hard all week, who care about their family, who still manage to get to church. And they often manage to get to perhaps a lunchtime Bible study group, you know, City Bible Forum or something like that, or they get to a weeknight Bible study group. It, it can be done. Why is it that these men weren't? Now, I, I don't know. I'm just going to speculate. One it might be, might it be that these guys were working huge hours to, I guess, maintain a certain lifestyle, which they got used to. They were, in effect, accumulating bigger and better toys, if not for themselves, then for their family. Could this be the sort of short-term investment which is indicative of materialism? Is that why? Maybe. Or perhaps it was an ambition issue. Might it be that they were working huge hours to get ahead in their careers because that made them feel better about things? And that was the problem. And might it be that on the weekend... When many of us go to church, perhaps they were prioritising sport or sleep-ins over meeting with other Christians for a few hours sometime on the weekend. See, my guess is, and while these men may not have realised it, I suspect they just breathed in the air of materialism. They said, look, I'm working hard looking after my family, but there are a whole lot of materialistic accumulation, ambition, I want to take it easy for a few days, uh, things creeping in which were sending their, I guess, their decisions right off course 
and were causing them to make the sorts of short-term investments, which if they made in their professional careers would probably see them get the sack. Now, I, I must say, I, I do get that. I don't want to sound judgmental because I, I, I feel sort of the subculture which those guys lived in, having sort of almost been part of it myself at one point. I guess the question is, are we as Christians being influenced by materialism sort of seeping into our thinking and we perhaps don't even realise it and we give it other names? So the passage here is about accumulation and ambition. Jesus urges us to prioritise accumulating treasures in heaven and our ambitions should be for God's kingdom and his righteousness. The question is, will we be commercial or countercultural? Commercial, i.e. materialistic, countercultural or Christian in our thinking. Do we want to live lives that impact eternity? Now, can I say, as with all aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been looking at over the recent weeks and we'll look at for the next few weeks, we can see these truths, but it can be so hard to live them out. And that's because we can only live out these sorts of things with God's strength, with God's Spirit working through us. And so what we really need to do is to pray to God that He will help us to see things the way He does, that we will want to accumulate treasures in heaven, that we'll want to seek first God's kingdom. It's God's Spirit which can make us want to and then live that way. So why don't I conclude by praying that that would be the case, that we would seek first God's kingdom and strive for things that last. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, yet again this week as we look at your word, we see the incredible practical relevance of it to our lives and we see that it often touches us uh, where we need to be, I guess, impacted. Lord, help us to be people uh, who do seek to store up treasures in heaven, to do things that last, that count for eternity, that our ambitions will be for your kingdom and your righteousness, not just for short-term things, as, as pleasant and as perfectly adequate as they may be, but Lord, help us to put you first and to live this way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.